The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am James Birch, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Good evening, Father. Hello, Jim. Tonight uh, we had a request to talk about the mercy of God, and it seemed appropriate considering that Pope Francis has recently decided to consecrate the next year to the, uh, as the year of mercy beginning this coming Tuesday. So, Father, I'd like to get uh, your input as far as what the Church's teachings always have been regarding mercy and what uh, the difference is in the Norvis Ordo Church as to what their promotion of our Lord's mercy is. Well, Jim, uh, actually, uh, all of Christianity is about mercy. It's about the mercy of God. Uh, But it necessarily involves God's justice at the same time because you cannot separate not in God, not in the church, nor in the human soul, uh, God's justice and his mercy. You know? uh, there are those who would like to make them uh, uh, polar opposites of each other and put them against each other, but that is not, not right. Because in Almighty God, justice and mercy are identical. They're the same. They're, they're, they're identical with God's own nature, you know, his, his divine nature. Um, we uh, distinguish them and uh, as Catholics, we understand that uh, the whole uh, motivation for God becoming man, uh, the Father sending his Son, <clears throat> and the Son being willing to be sent, was uh, to accomplish two great purposes. Uh, there were two, you might say, great laws that motivated the incarnation of the Son of God, uh, the first thing, the primary purpose that our Lord came to us to do was to make reparation to the Father. Uh, uh, the Son of God made reparation for the insult of the creature, human creature's sins, uh, by becoming man and, on behalf of mankind, uh, making reparation uh, for, and reparation meaning repair, uh, repairing that insult. And uh, even, even if, as a result of that, uh, no souls were saved, but all souls were lost, our Lord would have fulfilled that first great purpose in any case. Uh, he would have made reparation on behalf of all mankind for the sins of mankind against God. But there was another love that motivated our Lord too, and that was the love not only for his Father, but his love for uh, the creatures, his creatures. And so our Lord's secondary purpose in becoming man was to redeem us from our sins uh, with the possibility of salvation offered to us through his church. And our Lord established his church in order to uh, give us, uh, through the church, the power uh, of cooperating with the grace of God and knowing the faith and uh, loving God, uh, receiving the sacraments, and being justified from sin, 
and then sanctified by, by grace. And uh, then being faithful to God and obeying the commandments. And, and uh, as our Lord said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so this is uh, precisely what our Lord sent the apostles out to do. It was the foundation of the church. Going, therefore, as our Lord says at the end of St. Matthew's Gospel, preach the gospel to all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and instructing them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. There you have the powers of our Lord as the Son of God incarnate, conferred upon the apostles and given to the church for the sake of the uh, saving the souls that our Lord had redeemed. So all of this is about mercy, of course. It's about justice because our Lord was uh, serving justice uh, in making reparation for the sins of mankind. There you have justice, okay, that our Lord paid that great price, uh, the price that only he could pay. Uh, because only he could offer an infinite sacrifice for an infinite offense, uh, an offense against the majesty of Almighty God. <clears throat> so justice was served there in the very act of obtaining mercy for us. They have to go together. You know? uh, in fact, mercy loses all of its meaning unless there is justice as sort of the foundation. Um, um, so... When our Lord told the, uh, the the Pharisees that he had actually come to call sinners, because they were criticizing him, because he had all of these, um, uh, well, the, the Pharisees would have considered them ne'er-do-wells, uh, and uh, sinners who were flocking to our Lord, they criticized him for that. And our Lord said, I, well, I've come to call sinners, that's my point, I've come to um, justify them, uh, and then to uh, to sanctify them. But it has to start out by justifying them of sin. That's where it all begins. Um, so we see the, the very nature of the church is that it is a church of sinners, but repentant sinners, redeemed sinners, and uh, not only justified by sin, um, or having the hope of being justified by sin, uh, repenting and receiving forgiveness, but also being sanctified and ultimately saved and having eternal life in heaven. So that's where the mercy of God comes in. The mercy of God uh, comes in from performing an act of justice uh, on our behalf that we could not have performed for ourselves under any circumstances. No creature is capable of offering an act of infinite value, and that's what was required. So, um, the church understands justice and mercy to, um, well, I guess we could say, be two sides of the same coin. Um, uh, justice is rendering to another what is due to him. And there are different kinds of justice. Um, there's justice of one individual to another, as creatures, what, what we owe to each other, right? There's the justice that the, let's say, the government, uh, the state, the society owes to the individual citizen. There's the justice that the individual citizen owes to the society in which he lives. Okay? Uh, strictly speaking, there is not justice uh, that we can offer to God because we cannot provide to God what he really deserves on our own, of our own uh, resources. Okay? That's where we turn to our Lord. Um, 
we appeal to him and we share in his sacrifice and uh, therefore only in that way can we offer uh, to God what is really due to him only through Jesus Christ and that is why the mass is the ultimate sacrifice the ultimate prayer that we have to offer uniting ourselves with our Lord on the altar uh, then we're offering something of infinite value to the Father uh, infinite adoration infinite reparation, infinite thanksgiving, infinite supplication in the person, the divine person of God's own Son. Um, uh, but in giving us this power of offering to God the Father as something that was truly worthy of Him, our Lord was showing His great mercy because it's not something that we could under any circumstances deserve. It's not something under any circumstances that we could earn. Uh, and that is the very nature of mercy. Mercy is um, either avoiding an evil, being spared an evil that we do deserve, or receiving a good that we can't possibly deserve, or, or at least don't deserve, okay? And uh, in offering his life for us on the cross, our Lord has actually done both for us, both kinds of mercy, you might say, both aspects of mercy. Our Lord has enabled us to escape a punishment which we do richly deserve, um, but for the fact that he would offer the sacrifice, we would have no hope of avoiding that punishment. And our Lord offers us eternal life, a share in, in the divine life of God, sanctifying grace, grace here in this life uh, that is finally perfected in heaven uh, by the beatific vision. Uh, that is a reward that we couldn't possibly deserve to have. So, in both aspects of mercy, we find God's mercy granted to us here. Um, but again, it, you know, the, the church's understanding of this in moral theology and uh, even philosophy and her ethics, she says that uh, mercy and justice are really inseparable, not opposed to each other, but they're mutually bound to each other, inseparably bound to each other. Uh, in the Novus Ordo, uh, as Francis speaks, we see that he has a very different concept of mercy. Um, <clears throat> he does separate mercy from justice. <coughs> he does look upon an opposition between the two. Um, God's mercy is available to us uh, First of all, insofar as we repent and we stop sitting. Uh, God requires not only that we, not be, that we feel badly about our sins, that we feel sorry for our sins, that we regret our sins. Um, there are a lot of criminals out there who may regret their life of crime, uh, but they have no intention of giving it up because it's too lucrative. Okay? Uh, they may even fail badly for some of the crimes they've committed but they go on committing. There's no repentance there. You know? um, Judas regretted having betrayed Christ, but he didn't repent. Okay? And uh, the type of mercy that Francis is offering is not divine mercy, it's Francis' mercy. Uh, it is um, not even forgiveness. It's simply a matter of like, basically ignoring the sin uh, one can continue living uh, a life of sin, actually, but just 
count on the mercy of God in any case. Now, in the, in the eyes of the church, that is not mercy. <clears throat> in the eyes of the Catholic Church, that is a sin of presumption, which is a sin against the Holy Ghost, which is unforgivable, because it excludes the, the idea of repentance. Can God forgive every sin? Yes, he can. Every sin for which you can repent. But if you close the door to repentance and just say, well, God won't care in the end. He'll just overlook and say, oh, never mind, I really didn't mean it. And not hold anyone uh, to, to justice, um, just retribution for his sins. That is the sin of presumption. And these, there are six sins against the Holy Ghost. And our Lord says of them that these sins cannot be forgiven in this world or in the next. So it's a very serious matter. Uh, presumption is actually the flip side of despair. Despair is the great sin of uh, basically turning away from God's mercy, forsaking God's mercy and ruling it out and saying, I, I, I reject the mercy of God even as a possibility for me. And presumption, on the other hand, rejects God's justice and basically says, well, I can, I can do as I please and still expect that God will give me uh, the reward of eternal life and will not punish me for my sins. Uh, Francis, uh, it's not surprising to find that he has this, this false notion of mercy, is peddling this false notion of mercy to people, because Martin Luther did. Martin Luther taught that all you have to do is believe that Christ died for your sins, accept that fact that he is your Savior. That's all you can do. Um, you can't avoid sin. You can't stop sinning because your nature is so corrupt. <coughs> and so uh, all you can do is accept the fact that Jesus died for you on the cross and Christ has covered all of your sins, uh, past, present, and future. And you don't have to have the repentance to stop sinning because you have to have the humility to admit the fact that you can't stop sinning. So you shouldn't even try. It's pride and arrogance to make you think you can stop sinning, according to Luther, anyway. And so Francis, very much like Luther now, is adopting the approach that, uh, let's, let's not even talk about repentance here. I mean, it doesn't even come up, okay? You don't have to stop this. Just uh, accept the mercy of God. You know, and God wants so much to forgive you. That's really all he's interested in. Uh, he has a compulsion to forgive. He's a compulsive, compulsive forgiver, uh, which would make him a compulsive enabler. <laughs> you know? um, this is blasphemy, actually, uh, in the eyes of the Catholic Church. It's, it's interesting, actually, that you, you, you ended up tying that into Luther, because as I sat here listening to what you had to say about the fact that we can't earn... Um, the forgiveness, the mercy of God, because of, the, of how much our sins um, are, are offensive to God. Um, you know, I thought, well, Protestant might very well turn around and say, "Aha! You know, haven't you proven our point?" But then you went on and you talked about the the idea that we have to cooperate with God's graces. We have to repent of our sins and, and be sorry for them, and uh, and that's the Catholic answer to to the Protestants. And I thought, well. As you spoke, all I could think about was, well, isn't what Francis is saying, isn't that just Protestantism mm -hmm. all over again? Mm -hmm. Because uh, it's exactly what, what he's doing. He's saying you, you don't need repentance, you don't need any of that. As long as you believe in God, um, you, know, you, you will be saved. And he takes it a step further, though. 
Uh, I mean, in recent comments, um, recently he, he went into a, a mosque and talked about how Muslims are brothers and sisters with us, with, with Christians. And uh, uh, it seems like the, the only uh, ones who uh, don't fall into what Francis believes or, or that are people that can be saved are, are anyone who's a fundamentalist Catholic. He, he is a fundamentalist Catholics are... are um, uh, they are the reprobates. Correct. They are the reprobates, that's right. And so, I mean, Francis even went so far as to say that like, the atheists can be saved. You don't even have to have faith in Christ to be saved, you know? let alone have hope in him or love him. Uh, I mean, St. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you have to have faith and hope and charity to be saved, right? And Francis has basically said, you really don't need those things to be saved. Uh, you know, putting it all together, as Catholics do, we hear what our Lord says to his apostles. The Father himself loveth you, because you have loved me. It really is a matter of love. You know. Our Lord, Lord, Lord brings it down to that. St. Paul reiterates that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, but our Lord also says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we see the connection there that our Lord himself made very explicitly, that keeping the commandments is a matter of love for our Lord. Then, because of that love for our Lord, the Father loves us. And uh, you take that away, and you've lost all real Christianity. Um, So it's not just faith that is necessary to be saved. There is faith as the beginning, but it's just the beginning. Uh, Faith has to be made fertile in in hope, and has to be uh, made living, be brought to life by charity. As St. James says, uh, faith without works meaning in the sense of being motivated by the love for, our, for God. That's dead faith. It's not a living faith. <laughs> so, the, um, you know, it's funny you would mention that because Francis <clears throat> relentlessly pounds the fun, what he calls the fundamentalist Catholics. You know? And he's obviously referring to the traditional Catholics. Uh, he has rejected these old forms of religion. But that's what modernist does. He's a perfect modernist. He's like the embodiment of modernism. It's almost like uh, Bashendi, uh, uh, Pope Pius X's condemnation of modernism, has just sort of morphed into a human form. And it's Francis. Um, because he, he rejects the, 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 the traditional forms of religion, the Catholic religion, and says, now we have to replace this with something new that corresponds to our modern time, which now understands the mercy of God. He even goes so far as to uh, invoke the, the, the names of past heresies, time and time again, from the beginning of, of, of you know, when he was elected the, to be the supreme pontiff of the Novus Ordo, of the New Order, um, he was accusing traditionals, traditional Catholics of being like the Pelagians. And then he would turn around and he would say, well, they're also like the Gnostics, you know. And as he, as he tells you what he means by that, right, why he says traditional Catholics are like Pelagians of old, heretics, and why traditional Catholics are like Gnostics of old, you begin to realize he has no concept of what these things are. He's using these words. It's, it's almost embarrassing. 
because he does not know what Pelagianism is. And he doesn't know what Gnosticism is. When he starts trying to tell you how traditional Catholics are Pelagian and how traditional Catholics are Gnostics, you realize that not only does he not understand what Pelagianism is, and he doesn't understand what Gnosticism is, he doesn't even have a basic understanding of what traditional Catholicism is. <laughs> you know, as he's explaining these things. As I say, it's almost embarrassing because he's, he's like the Supreme Pontiff of the Novus Ordo. You think of all people, they would elect somebody who had uh, some fundamental concept of what these heresies were all about. He has no understanding of these things. You know, Pelagius was a British priest uh, back in the 5th century, about, about, about the turn of the century there. And uh, he taught, uh, basically, that uh, we can perfect ourselves. That by our own good works, we can save ourselves. You know? And uh, almost, I guess, the Masons might have a, a similar idea today that human nature is not uh, corrupted by original sin and we can you know, build up our natural virtues and actually earn our way uh, into some kind of pantheon, you know, some blessed spirit somewhere. Uh, Pelagianism was condemned. Um, condemned by the church, that's true. I mean, it is a heresy. But what Francis goes through to try to make Pelagianism uh, somehow fit traditional Catholicism is absurd. There's no comparison between the two. Traditional Catholicism never taught uh, and never can teach that we can sanctify ourselves. I mean, traditional Catholicism stands squarely on the church's teaching of original sin. <laughs> that, that grace is a gift from God. And um, from the beginning to end, I mean, the very first grace that we receive, the very first actual grace we receive, and to the very last, the grace of final perseverance, it's all a free gift from God. No one can earn these things. This is traditional Catholicism. Uh, he's trying to make traditional Catholicism a caricature of what it really is. He's setting up this straw man and then knocking it down with uh, using, uh, you know, like a bat with the word Pelagian on it. And um, that's what Luther did. That's, Luther set up a straw man Catholicism, said, Catholic, the Catholic faith says we're saved by our works. And then he knocked it down. The uh, problem is, the Catholic Church never said anything like that. The Catholic Church says just the opposite. But people believed it because he set up this false dichotomy between faith, believing, such as he defined it, and good works. And not, there's not a dichotomy between the two. Not correctly understood. Certainly not in Catholicism. And, um, and just recently, he, he, he also brought up Gnosticism. And he talks about that's over-rationalizing things. And that's what the fundamentalist traditionalists do. They over-rationalize things. And, uh, I mean, maybe he's trying to make some oblique reference to, to mystic the theology, maybe, to mystic philosophy. It doesn't work, in any case. And it's, it's just irrational. The only way it can even appear to make any sense on paper is, is if one tries to follow his convoluted connection there that he creates between Gnosticism and traditional Catholicism. Gnosticism, as you know, was the, was the great error that preceded our Lord, our Lord's coming into the world. It said that, I mean, basically human beings are God, right? 
and uh, that we are all pieces or shards of God. And uh, nowadays in the New Age movement, uh, now they don't even call it that anymore. Now it's going on to some other, you know, grand name. But the idea is that God is sort of coalescing now as human beings are uniting into a one-world religion, a one-world faith, a one-world uh, government. And this is God sort of pulling himself together in us as we're all beginning to, to, to reunite now in overcoming the divisions among us. But again, you know, to say that uh, traditional Catholicism uh, has any connection with Gnosticism is not only a stretch, it is a complete fabrication. Why does he do this? I mean, why does he, does he really think that, uh, that Pelagianism and Gnosticism, which he opposes to each other, but basically says they both are com comparable to traditional Catholicism, does he really believe that? Well, maybe out of ignorance he, he sees some kind of connection there. But I think, I get the impression anyway, that he's just trying to create some sort of veneer of scholarship some sort of uh, aura of scholarship about his, about his uh, denunciation of traditional Catholicism. Well, that's an interesting point, because I mean, even just recently, a few days ago, he made the comment that uh, there are religious people with values and those without. Mm -hmm. And he said, but how many wars have Christians made? The sacking of Rome was not done by Muslims, eh? But unless I'm forgetting my history, the... the Muslims did. Sack the Muslims Rome. did sack Rome. So, yes. yeah. but he. But you see, there you go. He, does he know? Does he know what he's talking about? How is this man even educated? He's supposed to be a Jesuit, you know. Um, I mean, we traditionally we regard Jesuits as the the, the, the paragons of education, not only edu well educated themselves, but the educators, right? But he doesn't show signs of having really taken any notes, or even attending class. Um, so, uh, it's, it, as I say, it's actually embarrassing to hear him speaking often. Um, but, you know, the fact is that, that Christians, yes, they have, they have fought wars, there's no doubt about it, right? I think he would also have to say, any reasonable person, that Christians have fought wars for very good causes and have paid very heavy prices. Um, and, but even, even, even when it was churchmen involved in the wars, I think you often had the case where you had an unworthy clergyman who intruded himself into the church, and he had no vocation to be a priest or a, or a bishop. And he's just a worldling who's in there thinking as a worldling and doing worldly things. Uh, such was the result of lay investiture, the lay investiture struggles of the early and mid-middle ages. Uh, when there were a lot of unworthy men who became clerics, because they were intruded in those positions by worldly princes who wanted their supporters to be in positions of power in the church, to support them. Uh, worldly men getting into the church is a very serious problem. Okay, Francis would agree with that. And he has denounced worldliness, but he is among the most worldly because he is, he is so focused on the things of the world He's focused on um, the social justice, which is all about life in this world. And very, very seldom, if ever, does he talk about eternal life in heaven. Um, 
just recently he was talking about the use of a of a of a, of a device which was basically uh, used for mortal sin, what the Catholic Church would say, a mortal sin of impurity. He's talking about this openly. You know? And he says, well, how can we even think about these things, those problems, when people are hungry and are starving and are poor and are, have no shelter and are cold? He's thinking about these worldly things as somehow, in his mind, drowning out the consideration of what is a mortal sin against the virtue of purity, which offends God very much. He's so focused on the things that make human life uh, uncomfortable, even tragic in this world, <coughs> that he's starting, he's telling us, don't obsess about these things that offend God. Because they're distractions. We've got to think about the important things. Don't, just, don't obsess about abortion. I mean, the church has always said that's the murder of an innocent human life. But don't obsess about that, okay? Don't obsess about uh, contraception. Don't obsess about homosexual marriage. Don't obsess about these things. Well, these are the things that we always find are sins that cry to heaven for vengeance from God. Because there's such an attack on him and his sovereignty, right? As the giver of, of all life, you know? No, what Francis says we've got to think about is poverty. We've got to think about hunger. We've got to think about global warming. Those are the things that matter. At the same time, he's focusing on these things. He's obsessing about these things. He's denouncing worldliness in everybody else, especially fundamentalists. What he's trying to do is he's trying to basically say, look, fundamentalism is the problem. Fundamentalism in Catholicism, any Christianity, Islam, and so on. These are not really. Christianity or Islam or Catholicism. That's not really what these religions are. Fundamentalism is what they all have in common. They're all the same. They're all fanaticism. There's no God there, right? And there's no value. They, they have no values, basically, right? He condemned them as being Pharisees when he's not calling them Pelagians, when he's not calling them Gnostics. And um, he's just redefined all of these terms as modernists will. And then having redefined them, he starts playing with them and creating scenarios that are exactly the opposite of the truth. He says, uh, fundamentalism is a sickness in all religions. Okay, there you are. Uh, and, perfect, I, and I think perfect, you're right, too. The, uh, his part. The, the word that he used you know, for, for those sins of, uh, of impurity was that oh, those are, are unimportant. Unimportant. I think you hit it right on the head as far as where, where he's focusing. Um, and, and moreover, this, this is the quote that really kind of blew my mind, though. And, and he was talking about fundamentalists, traditionalists, and he said, We Catholics have some, and not some many, who believe in the absolute truth. Okay, so here he's talking about oh. the fundamentalists who believe in the absolute truth and then go ahead dirtying the other with calumny and di with disinformation and doing evil. They do evil said the Pope, I say this because it is my church. So by believing in absolute truth... It is my church. That's right. You know who said that? Our Lord says that in the Gospel. Our Lord himself says that. Who does Francis think he is? Is he the vicar of Christ or is he Christ? Well, you think he thinks of himself as Christ because he's basically founding a church, his church. It's Francis's church. It's not the Catholic church. 
He's got his own papacy, he's got his own doctrine, he's got his own everything. He's basically refounding the church in his own mind, but he's the founder. He's the founder of a new religion here. Uh, you know, what you, what you said there, that the, these people think they have absolute truth, right? He's kind of denouncing that idea. Yes, right? yes, very much so. Okay, well, there you are. I mean, what have you got left then, right? Mm -hmm. But see, again, that's, that's quintessential modernism. Uh, there is no real truth that is absolute in modernism whatsoever. Modernism is antithetical to that. It's the rejection of that whole idea. The idea of an absolute truth is an evil in the mind of a modernist. Francis is a modernist. The idea of absolute truth is evil in the mind of Francis, right? And that is the source of their problems. Their absolutism comes from that idea of absolute truth. So in other words, you'll have to make it up as you go along. By the way, you say that. Abortion, contraception, homosexual marriage, these things are not important, okay? We believe they're important because they offend God, and to us, God is important. But Francis talks as though man is God. Man is offended by poverty, hunger, and all that. Because man is offended, that's what really matters. Don't bother with the other stuff. That's where the mercy comes in, okay? God just is merciful about abortions and contraception and uh, gay marriage and all the rest. God's merciful about all that, you know, because, uh, after all, what's that in comparison with the fact that people are living in poverty? He says the coexistence of wealth and poverty is a scandal. Well, there you are. Well, that's the most important. That's what matters to Francis. Right. Yeah. And all the time he's saying that, that he's thinking about wealth and poverty, wealth and poverty, wealth and poverty. He's denouncing everybody else for being worldly. I mean, what could be more worldly than being obsessed about the things of the world? And that's exactly what he is. Um... The hypocrisy of this all is absolutely astounding, but for the fact that, as a modernist, he can think he can think like this without being a hypocrite, because he doesn't think in terms of truth. Uh, he thinks as a modernist does, and um, <laughs> for a modernist, truth is what you make it. Uh, truth is the, like the, that's the zeitgeist, right? It's the spirit of the age. It's, uh, what did John the 23rd call it? The signs of the times, right? Uh, modern, even God, in the mind of the modernist, evolves. The concept of God, the understanding of God, the experience of God that mankind has, evolves with time. And uh, whatever that experience happens to be at the moment, that is the truth at the moment, okay? But it's still going to evolve and beyond that. And then you have to leave that concept of God behind because now it's passé. And you have to go on to mankind's next, the latest, greatest experience that they have of God. And who, who, who uh, mankind conceives God to be, how they experience him. When you hear Francis talk, it's, it's scary and it's actually creepy because it's impossible to hear Francis talk and not to associate what he's saying with Lord Maitreya of the Theosophists, the world teacher who's going to come in the world and 
teach mankind the ultimate lesson that it is God, that mankind is God. Okay? The very first temptation to Eve, as I mentioned in the Garden of Eden long ago, Satan said, defy God, and God knows that if you do, you'll be as God yourself, knowing good and evil. You'll be your own God. Okay? Same temptation here. But it's going to be fulfilled by the Antichrist coming into the world and teaching mankind its own divinity. That's the very definition of Gnosticism. Okay? Francis is uh, certainly uh, in the school of the Gnostics, even as he's denouncing it. Uh, uh, his obsession with uh, human life in this world and his looking to um, basically uh, tell mankind, look, we have to solve this problem. Mankind has to solve its own problem with its greed and with its poverty and with its, uh, you know, contrary wealth and so on. It's, it's up to us. We have to address this and solve it. Okay, and when we do this, we will be basically making the world a happy place, almost like a new Garden of Eden. You know? But he, is, he doesn't have the words of eternal life. Remember when, when, our Lord promised, when our Lord promised to give his body and blood? He was in the, uh, he was in the synagogue at Capernaum the day after he multiplied the loaves and the fishes and fed the thousands. And they wanted to make, take him and force him to be their king. And our Lord disappeared. The very next day, the... Many of those people had come around the northern end of the Sea of Galilee and they were looking for our Lord. And they found him in the synagogue of Capernaum. And our Lord said to them, You've come seeking me because I fed you out there in the wilderness. And you ate the bread, but your fathers ate the manna in the desert and they've all died. But I can give you a bread. I have a bread that if you live, if you eat of this bread, you will live forever. Right? And that's what our Lord promised to give them the Blessed Sacrament, himself, his own flesh and blood, as their food and drink. And so many of them turned and walked away. And our Lord asked his apostles, will you also walk away? Peter's answer was so perfect. You know, Peter said, Lord, you, if I may paraphrase, uh, this is St. John chapter 6, you can go and look it up. You, meaning you alone, have the words of eternal life. To whom else shall we go? You and you alone can offer and offer eternal life. Where, where would we go for that? You know, that's not the message of Francis. That's not the answer of Francis. He's not thinking in terms. He's not talking in terms of eternal life. He's talking in terms of creating some kind of a, a paradise here on earth. And um, this this is not the voice of Christ that is speaking here. Quite the, quite the contrary. And um, what's interesting, too, about that is that the most merciful thing that Christ could have done for us was to give himself to us. And uh, here we, it's a matter of no importance in, in the church. And we, and we started by talking about mercy, and, and it's developed into a discussion about the, the current affairs uh, of, the, of the modern church. But I think that, that illustrates exactly what's happened to mercy. Mercy has, has um, been destroyed uh, by, by the modern church. And if you wouldn't mind, I've heard you talk about this before, and sometimes, as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. And it might help some of our, uh, our viewers if they were able uh, to, to picture this in their minds. 
You've spoken before about the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and what that has turned into in the modern church. Yeah. And it's a very it's an image that everyone can see in their minds yeah. as far as mercy goes. And can can you contrast uh, what the Sacred Heart of Jesus in the traditional senses and what the churches the modern church has turned that into for our viewers? Well, the modern church has promoted the divine mercy devotion and replaced the image of the Sacred Heart with essentially nothing. They show our Lord there, or someone, you know, with a beard and a white robe and so on, with two rays of light emanating from a point in his chest, or on the surface of the robe, whatever. One red and one white. Uh, and um, this is the emblem of the Divine Mercy devotion, you know. But, um, again... Their, 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 their thrust on mercy is basically um, a sin of presumption, saying, you know, just don't worry about God's justice. God's justice is not a factor, right? We have to put that aside. That's what mercy is, right? Um, the, the image of the Sacred Heart of our Lord, on the other hand, shows both God's justice and His mercy. It shows uh, our Lord's heart uh, aflame with love for us. It shows our Lord's heart is encircled by the crown of thorns, pierced by the lance, bleeding. God's justice, a price of sacrifice, had to be paid. But the fact is, that price was paid by our Lord out of mercy for us. He freely gave that price himself for us. Um, this is the teaching of the church, that the modernists, have, have sought to completely um, falsify. You know, you say they, they've destroyed uh, mercy, and, and basically they have. They, 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 they've, they've replaced it with something that is very false, an imposter. They've falsified mercy um, by, by pretending that, well, uh, you know, well, I mean, Francis might even come out and say it. You know, those, those fundamentalists, you know, they want justice and just, they thirst for justice. Well, our Lord said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice is sake, you know, right? Uh, they're blessed, right? So the same Lord in the same Beatitudes talks about blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Our Lord did not in any way oppose justice and mercy. You know, he put them in the same Beatitudes and said they're both necessary to be blessed. Uh, Francis doesn't uh, doesn't have that same doctrine. So the, this this uh, constant drumbeat, this this constant emphasis on mercy, uh, is is basically a way of denying God's justice in the Novus Ordo, and, and 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 forgetting it, pushing it to the side as though. Um, as though God had forsaken justice for the sake of mercy, and he just can't help himself, he wants to be mercy. Mercifully, he doesn't really exact justice for anyone. And uh, this is the problem, the hang-up with the traditionalists, the fundamentalists, is they still see the justice of God as a factor. And basically, the, the modernists of the Nova Service say, it's not a factor. That is why when Our Lady of Fatima says, you know, these sins are going to bring great disaster on the earth and our lady gives a whole list of there's a terrible things that are going to have calamities that will befall mankind because of its sins and uh, and uh, our lady says we have to repent of those sins and consecrate ourselves to the immaculate heart 
And Francis is basically saying, uh, essentially, don't listen to her. She doesn't know what she's talking about. All right, Francis, I know. You have to worry about justice striking us for sin. It's all mercy now. This is essentially his message, message now. If, if I may, maybe... <laughs> Basically, what you're saying is, and sometimes if you look at things through the eyes of a child, it, it uh, uh, can clarify matters rather easily. I mean, if you would imagine running a school and having a bunch of rules in the school, and the punishment for breaking any of the rules in the school is to give the child a piece of candy. And so, one of the students, you know, little Johnny breaks a rule, and the teacher gives him a piece of candy and then says, See how merciful I am? I didn't punish you for breaking the rule. Johnny would say, What are you talking about? You're not being merciful. There's no punishment. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're supposed to give me a piece of candy if I break a rule. Even a child would say, you're making a mockery <laughs> of the rule, authority, justice, and even mercy. You're making a mockery of all that. And yeah, that's true. That's exactly right. The, and I love the, the image that you give with the, uh, with the Sacred Heart. And, and uh, they, they just erase it. It's as if, it's, mm -hmm. as if it never existed. Mm -hmm. and because they don't want the... The thought that there could be that there is any punishment, that there is any hell, that there is any purgatory or anything that, that could be bad uh, as far as sin goes. And, and Francis goes on to say that in the church. So their mercy, like you said, is just a, it's a false, propped up, made up nothing. So um, I think you did a very excellent job tonight, Father, of explaining that. Well, Jim, thank you. Um, that certainly could be better explained, there's no doubt about it. Um, even with the Pelagianism, though, this idea of mankind, uh, you know, perfecting itself and, you know, or making, earning its own way, again, that applies to Francis. It doesn't apply to traditional Catholicism because his whole method is we have to get together and we have to solve our problems here of poverty and so on and so forth. You know, it, it always amazed me. You have people who... Uh, Let's take an atheist, okay? Someone who says there is no God, we can't look to heaven for help, we've got to solve this problem ourselves, okay? I mean, you can say, well, the poor individual is really mixed up. Uh, the Bible does say, the Psalms say twice, uh, the, only the fool says in his heart there is no God, you know? But say you have somebody who's been so traumatized by things, he actually comes around to that way of thinking and he's all mixed up, okay? Uh, that's more understandable than somebody who says, therefore, let's turn to socialism. Because, I mean, you'd think if they learned anything from history, they would learn that you don't turn to the government to solve your problems. If there's any, any lesson that history has taught us, you don't turn to the politicians to solve your problems. Um, and yet we have people today who are very anti-Christian, right? Uh, let alone anti-Catholic, true Christianity. And, you know, they'll, they'll point out these problems, those problems, but they, they, will, they will actually say, we have to forsake capitalism, we have to forsake this, we have to forsake that. We have to go to socialism, because only then can we actually solve all these problems. And, and it's as though you can't, you can't, believe these people really believe that uh, because um, you can't believe that they, ha they haven't figured out that the entire experience of human history is that the government is made of human beings 
and they have their faults, and you give them power to um, aggrandize themselves and to control other human beings. And unless they have faith, hope, and charity and real virtue, they're going to abuse that power. So why would anybody in his right mind say, let's turn to the government to actually solve all of these problems? But again, you turn to Francis, you listen to Francis, and he's always talking about the governments of the world solving the problems of unequal wealth by redistributing wealth, redistributing wealth. Now you talk to people here in our own country, often Democrats, Republicans, you're not going to find a significant difference necessarily. They will all tell you they don't have confidence in politicians. Okay? The funny thing is, you'll have the same person who tells you, no, I don't trust politicians. You know, we got to get the politicians out of government because they're just, they're in it for themselves at my expense, okay? And yet the same person will, will say, yes, these politicians are causing all these troubles. We have, you know, uh, the, the American population has 13%, you know, approval uh, rating for the United States Congress or something like that. And the Supreme Court has an approval rating of so much and so on. You know, not an awful lot of confidence in government because of the politicians. But the problem is, then the socialists, the socialist comes out and says, but we have to turn to the government. Government has to save us. You know, but didn't you just say that you don't trust politicians, but government is the solution to all these problems. And who do you think is in the government? Who are these people? So they think of government as some sort of like, uh, some, some, like a Wizard of Oz character, you know, uh, some benign uh, mythological critter somewhere on some Mount Olympus, you know, who just wants the chance to swoop down and, and save us from ourselves and give us all the money we need and get us health care, right, mm -hmm. right, and solve all the rest. How can you still have people on the face of the earth who believe in socialism and think that government is the, is the solution to this problem? Uh, any problem at all. That, that just always mystifies me. And here you have Francis leading the charge on that now. The most public figure. I'm going to hear, uh, let's say, a prime minister or a president of a nation pompously talking about how, yes, we're going to solve this, we're going to give you health care, we're going to give you this, we're going to give you that. Well, that's what they do. They're politicians. They make promises like that, you know. Um, but to have a man who is like the supreme pontiff of, well, really, a Novus Ordo church, a new order uh, religion, uh, representing this, this whole idea and preaching this idea before the whole world, that the governments of the world must come together and solve these problems is unfathomable and frightening. Um, because, I mean, this is exactly where uh, St. Pius X was warning that he saw the, the Antichrist lay ahead in our future. So we, we have to uh, realize that this is not the voice of Catholicism here. The only solution is to return to the traditional Catholic faith. Uh, learn what Pelagianism really is. 
learn what Gnosticism really is, recognize that that's where the modernists are going, but the traditional Catholics and traditional Catholicism is the only thing that can rescue us from that terrible fate. I have to go back to what Our Lady warned us at Fatima was a solution. We had to stop sinning, we have to repent of our sins, and not just feel bad about them, repent of them, we have to stop offending God, we have to consecrate ourselves to our Immaculate Heart. And we have to have not just faith, but hope and charity, the charity that enables us to follow the law of God, and a charity that binds us to Christ and makes us love him so that the Father himself will love us. This is the way to God. This is the way to the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, his sacred heart. This is the one place where we really can find divine mercy. And I guess it's difficult to learn from history when you don't know history and you consider that the, you don't even know whether the Muslims sacked Rome or not. Uh, because whether it's, as a, it's, whether it's disinformation, not having the knowledge, or just simply doing what you talked about earlier where they're just simply doing a revisionist history, you know, just the way that they're revising the Catholic Church, it's also dangerous and, uh, and there, there is no absolute truth. Okay, and that, that's why they, they would target those who hold fast to the traditional faith, because we believe in that there are absolute truths. Right, yeah, right. And, and I, I think they also realize that we actually know a bit about history. I think they feel that they can take advantage of the ignorance of people and say nonsensical things like Pelagianism is like traditional Catholicism. Gnosticism is like fundamentalist Catholicism, right? That fundamentalist Catholicism is the same as fundamentalist Islam and so on. They get away with saying things like this, okay? Because people don't know any better. Um, well, this is where, you know, it is the church really who's supposed to be. The church is the mater magistra. She is the teacher of mankind by all rights. Uh, because Christ gave her that power, that authority, that responsibility. Um... And the, the Novus Ordo Church is not teaching mankind. It says it has to learn from mankind. I mean, you know, I don't want to go off in an entirely different direction here. But if you look at this new papacy that Francis is creating here around himself, right? <laughs> you see it forming now, as it were, sort of rising out of the pages of Pascendi, uh, the encyclical against modernism. For Francis, basically after the last synod on the family, said, this is a synodal church now, okay? His church is a synodal church, okay? It's a church that is going to be governed by assemblies, synods, okay? So he's going to get the bishops together, and the bishops are going to meet, and they're going to talk, and they discuss, and inform Francis, and report to him, and Francis is going to discern what is he going to discern from all of this? Well, he's going to discern where the people are now in their faith. Why is he bringing the lay people in to talk to the bishops in these synods? Because the bishops need to learn from the lay people where their faith is right now. Classic modernism, okay? Faith is an experience of the people, okay? That's where the faith experience is. It's in the day-to-day -day life of the people, of the church, the laity. So they have to be the ones to inform the hierarchy of the Novosoro Church 
where they're at, so to speak, what they're now experiencing of God in their daily lives. So they have to bring this to the attention of their priests and their bishops now, who are learning from the lay people what is the current experience of mankind, of God, who God is now, see, in their daily lives. That's what Francis might as well have said it in those terms when he said, we've got to bring the lay people to talk before the bishops here to tell us of reality. We're, we're learning reality from them. And then this has to finally funnel up and to Francis, okay, who has the last word. But what's the last word of Francis? Does the spirit move him? What spirit is this and what does it move him to do? The spirit for Francis now, as of course the great representative of all of the, of the Christian people in the world, uh, the spirit enables him to discern what the spirit is saying now through the people what they're experiencing in. Francis' job now as the Pope of a Novus Ordo is now to distill out the experience of the people and their experience of God and to express it in a way that they all can, you know, accept as the faith now. That's what the Pope is in his mind. That's what he is in his own mind. That's his position as the Bishop of Rome now. Um, so basically, he is bas he's basically the mouthpiece for the, the people in their daily lives' experience of God. You know, this is completely antithetical to Catholic teaching about divine revelation. What divine revelation is, what faith is. You know? He's redefined these terms. When he uses the word faith, don't think in terms of what the Catholic Church means by faith. If you're thinking of that, when he speaks of faith, you're going to get completely confused because it's going to become very clear to you that that's not what he means. Okay? When he talks about revelation, as a Catholic, you have a concept of what divine revelation is. But it doesn't take you long to figure out that that is exactly not what he means by revelation. He's redefined all these things. He understands all of these terms in the modernist sense. And so basically what he's doing here is he is uh, basically using Newspeak uh, to fashion a, the modernist religion using uh, the old vocabulary, redefined, all in modernist terms. Um, so it's not just happening this is to not mercy. Catholic. He's this doing it to faith. He's doing it to all of the different they, Sacrament, it doesn't mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sacrament, faith, revelation, even God. And what does that mean to him? Yeah. Um, we, we have to ask ourselves, when you read what, what he says about, about these, you know, it says about all these things, you begin to see that it doesn't, doesn't uh, you know, fit with what you as a Catholic learned from the Catechism mm -hmm. and what the Church believed not only uh, before Vatican II, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, what the Fathers taught, you know, it just doesn't fit. And the reason being is because uh, he's, the modernists redefine all these terms. 
And this is very deadly because Catholics hear the word sacrament, they hear the word faith, they hear the word church, they hear the word God, they hear the word spirit, they hear all these words. And they think in terms of what the catechism, the, the, the real catechism of the church says these things mean. And so they're constantly bumping into the inescapable uh, reality uh, that that's not what the modernists mean when they use these terms. And so Catholics get very confused by what they say. Um, the only way they can really understand the significance of what Francis is actually saying is if they know their traditional Catholic faith well enough to be able to say, this is not the traditional Catholic faith, I know that. But then they have to know what modernism is to realize exactly what he is saying. Which is exactly why it's so important for us to study uh, about our faith, to learn about our faith, uh, to pray, because of course uh, as much studying as one can do, uh, uh, cooperating with God's graces is every bit as important as uh, just book learning uh, can be and, and prayer uh, mm -hmm. uh, to God. I mean, the real revelation, right, comes when, uh, in, in true prayer to God. When, uh, and so that is uh, really what we must do, is take the words of Our Lady of Fatima. And, and well, we have to be a little careful about that, too. Yeah. I mean, God, Protestant, right? <laughs> I mean, God can, in the you know advanced stages of the spiritual life, He does reveal to the soul. He reveals Himself to the soul, and uh, that's true. That's not public revelation, of course. Um, he makes His love known, and um, we we talk about the the ages of the spiritual life. The second age being the illuminative way when one d does realize, begin having experience of God actually addressing the soul and revealing himself to the soul in, in special ways. But when we're talking about revelation of the divine truths, see, uh, normally we're talking about public revelation. Uh, what we have in sacred tradition and sacred scripture. Okay, And uh, Francis is, is detaching the faith from these things. And he's redefining it, meaning in the modernist sense, that it is the current experience of mankind of who God is now, as they're encountering God, encountering God in their daily lives. That's the new revelation. It's interesting because having gone to a Protestant school when I was younger, it was about private revelation. And basically what you're saying, though, is Francis is taking that and he's making it public revelation that then comes through him. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's just a, like the evolved form of Protestantism. Right, right. You could, yeah, yeah, that's a very good, interesting way to put it. It is, it is a basically an evolved form of Protestantism. Yeah, yeah. And fault, in fact, uh, you, you might even say it's kind of the ultimate form. It's, it's taking Protestantism to its inexorable logical conclusions. Modernism, right? And of course, St. Pius X said it's, it's just the dissolution of all real faith. Well, Father, I thank you very much for a very enlightening uh, session tonight. Oh, well, thank you, Jim. And uh, if uh, any of our viewers have any questions or comments, uh, feel free to please email us. Uh, we do read over all of the uh, emails that you send to us. We appreciate them very much. 
And uh, please remember our, the words of Our Lady at Fatima, that we must consecrate ourselves and our families to the Immaculate Heart and to the Sacred Heart of our Lord, that we must pray and make sacrifice. Thank you very much.